hello from last week. It's the past right now. Last Sunday, to be precise. And we are currently in presumably sunny Florida. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we're recording early because we're going on vacation. But by the time you hear this, we'll be coming back tomorrow. So It's my mom's 88th birthday, so we're going to fly down to Florida. How about you throw that uh, applause button on over there? Okay, happy birthday to, Yay! to my mom. She listens every week. She is one of our biggest fans, and we love her very much. And I, for one, miss her terribly. She is our biggest fan. I don't know. Yeah. We have some pretty dedicated fans. Yeah, we do. But hey. happy birthday. We love you very, very much. Well, before we get started too far into this, we have new followers this week. We have Poets2462, and then another one of those Podbean <laughs> ones, PBG60022APKQK. And we have Greg Scott, 1991. And we can I, have. Wait, wait, can I say the last one? Yeah, go ahead. Because I think you got to say it a certain kind of way. No, just say it the way her name is written. I. It is. California Sweet Thing. California Sweet Thing is our new follower. So you know what you have to do? Go out, tell five friends about an Hour of Your Life podcast and get them to follow us and to listen to a couple episodes. Y'all have been doing your homework. Thank you so much. We have, obviously, our followers are growing. We had, I think, three last week, four this week, which means... Most of you are telling five people. I think some of you are only telling one or two because... Yeah, maybe. Maybe mm, so. But that's all right. But we'll, that's okay. We'll take what we can get. We'll take what we can get with this. Would well, you like to introduce this week's special guest? Yeah, I sure would. Because, Speaking of flying... Yeah, you're going to be kind of leading things this week because I know very little about this <laughs> week's episode. Yeah, okay. So this week we have Matt on with us by telephone because Matt couldn't be here tonight. I mean, it was too far a drive, but uh, Matt was an Army aviator. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Matt. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of applause buttons tonight. Yeah, yeah it's a happy episode. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, what, what did you fly in the Army? I fly, uh, I flew UH-60 Blackhawk. Uh, so the ones that like Hollywood likes to uh, blow up all the time. Oh, okay. Those kind of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Did you ever yep. have one blow up on you? No. No. Fortunately, yeah. Well, that's I was, and, I was that's very lucky good, in that regard. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that's a good thing right there. Um, yeah. Well, Matt, I, before we get into it, you know, with the, all the exciting stuff, being a, an Army aviator, tell us, just tell us a little about mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. Um, I am a Rhode Island native, um, grew up there, born and raised, I uh, went to a military college. I went to North university in Northfield, Vermont. And, uh, upon graduating there, I went into the army active duty, uh, where I was sent out to Fort Rucker, Alabama to go to flight school. And that's where I learned how to fly helicopters and eventually learned how to fly the U-860 Blackhawk. Um, a little bit after that, after I graduated flight school, I headed out to Fort Hood, Texas, uh, where I did my first duty station out there as a platoon leader, and then immediately deployed uh, out to northern Afghanistan for my first deployment, where I spent 12 months out there. Um, and Yay. yeah, <laughs> you know, fun times. Yep, you know, you know, it was definitely an education. Um, came back from Afghanistan. Uh, helped the unit move to El Paso. Uh, there was a, doing a whole um, kind of musical chairs thing in the Army. The Army likes to move units around every now and once in a while. And once I was done with that, I went back to Fort Rucker, and I became an instructor there. I didn't teach people how to fly, but I taught people about Army aviation, which is um, a really big part of um, learning about being a pilot. You have to really understand what the culture is and, and what it does and what their job is in the army and why we exist. And, uh, after that, I, uh, went to a little bit more schooling, um, for officers. And then after that schooling was done, I headed out to Germany where I spent the next four years, 
I did a lot of time out there, um, did a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I was a staff officer. I took command of a company. I went to Afghanistan again. Um, and then Ooh, I you just couldn't get enough of it the first time, huh? <laughs> did you leave yeah. something there? <laughs> what did you forget in Afghanistan you had to go back for? Yeah, uh, I don't know. It might have been a toothbrush. You know, you know, I always forget my toothbrush. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then um, and then I did uh, what I, what they call in the army is a, an observer coach trainer, which is like a a war game referee. So it's almost like a like a military consultant of sorts uh, for um, aviation U.S. aviation forces. But I also worked with um, NATO and coalition aviation forces as well. And then uh, my Last assignment on active duty brought me to Ohio, where that's where I met Steve, uh, and I became an Army ROTC instructor. And I think out of all the things that I did, all the cool things I did in the Army, it actually was uh, the best job I ever had. Uh, really? To train, uh, train, yeah, getting to train future officers was you know just right up my alley. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, getting to see college kids grow into responsible adults and leaders where they're going to be in charge of, you know, America's sons and daughters and millions of billions of dollars of equipment and, you know, and really uh, go out into the world and do great things, you know, and it's, it's really great knowing that you had a significant role on, on their development. Hey, that's uh, awesome. So, yeah. That's, that's cool stuff. But look, before we get into all that, I've got to go back yeah. to Norwich, which is a military school. What? Yep. Okay, so I'm assuming you didn't have a normal college life. Tell me about. No, tell me about. <laughs> tell, tell me about military school in Norwich. Yeah, it's a, it's an odd choice. So um, you have the, the federal military academies here in the United States. So you got West Point, Annapolis for the Navy, the Air Force Academy, um, and and then there's another level of military schools, which are more private military. They call them senior military colleges and you pay just like what like you go to just any other normal college, but you live a military lifestyle there. Um, so you wear a uniform every day. You go through, you know, your version of basic training as a freshman and your freshman year is very rigorous and, and um, uh, your days are planned out very intently uh, and you're, you're groomed to be a leader. Um, and as the great thing about, Norwich and the senior military colleges like Norwich is that unlike the federal academies, you're not required to go into the military once you graduate. Um, you kind of have that choice to go out and and do other things. So I've had a lot of other friends that go into some of the three letter, uh, agencies, FBI, DEA, you name it. Like, you know, a lot of people became police officers. A lot of people went into education, became doctors, um, lots of stuff. And then of course, a lot of us went into the military. Yeah. Yep. No, I, no, but I, I got to go on now. This may be classified top secret to your school. Were you hazed? <laughs> <laughs> Did they do anything weird to you your freshman year? Uh, I mean, military, <laughs> military schools are always, it's always a unique experience. I don't like, how very diplomatic of you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very challenging um, group, you know, uh, events where you were you were brought together, you know, as a, as an organization. And um, I think a lot of people like sometimes like and it all depends on who you talk to. You, you, you say like there's a fine line between training and hazing, and you know, and it just <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's the intent the intent behind it, and you know, and how you're treating people. But uh, uh, it was it was a really amazing experience it was unique you know and, and i loved my time in, in military school and the the people that i went through freshman year with i am still fantastic friends with like still to this very day i i think i was just talking to one of my other friends the other day with an answer uh, and he, with, with an answer like that you need to run for congress <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I want to yep. take a minute and kind of back up a little bit because you get two army guys talking and letters are mm-hmm. going to start flying around and, uh, you know, you talk about MOS and, and, um, ROTC and just all the different military yeah. acronyms and mm-hmm. just the, the experience, like what is a platoon versus what is a, a unit versus, you know, a, I think the average person may not know any of those things. So let's take a minute, especially and talk about the MOS, 
like your MOS and what that means. I don't care either one of you, um, what that means and how do you, do you get to pick your MOS? I know in ROTC, you have a, you have like a, a request for an MOS. Can you guys kind of briefly talk about what that is? And then we'll talk about your, you're actually being a pilot. Yeah, sure. Steve, you want to, you want to start off with that and then I can jump in. Yeah. Well, for, for Matt, he went through what is called a sessions and he got a wish list. And with Matt wanting to be a pilot, he had to take some extra tests and some physicals and things like that. And then depending on how well Matt did in with his grades and how well Matt did with his leadership during school and how well Matt did on his physical fitness, then that upped his chance because aviation is a very popular branch and a lot of people want aviation. So obviously we're, we're, we're talking with the cream of the crop right here because Matt got to be an army aviator and that's all decided when he's, when he's in college. Yeah. 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 That was the kind of thing like, uh, like I went through ROTC, I went through the reserve officer training corps in military school. So it it was interesting. Like you had this military lifestyle that was army based, but like you had all the different ROTCs that you could experience at Norwich. Um, so I had a lot of peers that went through the air force ROTC, some went through Marine, some went through the Navy and, um, the army, but yeah, yeah, he's absolutely right. Like you had a wish list and, um, and you had to, at the time, I think there was 16 different job types that you could run into as an officer, at, at least when I was going through, there's a, there's a little bit more now, but there were 16 options and you had to rank those from first to last of what you wanted. And, uh, the army said, okay, we're going to take a little bit of the, the top performers, like the top third, we're going to take the middle third, and then we're going to take the bottom third. And we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of each group and we're going to put them into each one of these uh, branches, uh, in the army so that you don't get all the rock stars in, you know, in one area. And then you get a bunch of people that were just, you know, just barely getting by in another area. And, you know, so you really want to spread out the, you know, the experiences and the skills and knowledge of everybody who, who comes into the army. And that's why it's just a great diverse, uh, culture and organization. Yeah. Um, Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And to expound on what Matt said, there, there are some branches that are not very popular. And yeah. with, with the Army system, they don't just take all the people who were the, when I don't want to say bottom performers, because to do this, you have to be at a certain level. Oh, yeah. But in the, mm-hmm. in the grand scope of things, they take, the Army will take, just for lack of a better term, top performers, and they'll be distributed out the branch. So one branch doesn't have like, the, the bottom performers and yeah. the top branches. Well, don't. and I would think too, mm-hmm. like there are people like I love filling out forms. Love it. I can't imagine that like clerk would be, or I don't even know what the military equivalent is. I don't imagine that like form filler outer is one of the top things that people well, want. You would, you would be so, amazed because, really? yeah, yeah, because yeah. some of the jobs in the army, like, infantry and armor they don't have a lot of jobs that can translate well to the civilian side that makes but, sense but jobs like supply what we call the adjutant general which is hr in civilian terms so that's kind of like what you yeah. say the form fillers those are jobs that lead to good employment when you get out of the army so you that's true it, i never it, really it, thought of it that it, way it, it's a balance a lot of people will pick those br- what you know when I say the, the less glamorous, the yeah. less glamorous branches because there's not a lot of call for an infantry officer when they get out. Now they learn a lot of skills, but there's no direct job unless they want to go be a mercenary someplace. Yeah. There's no there's no direct yeah. job correlation. Now, Matt, yeah. did you always want to be a pilot? Um kind of, yeah. I actually like my my aspirations as a child, I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah, I was a huge Apollo nerd. I guess I still am. I love the <laughs> I love the Apollo uh, space program era, um, and uh, that that was something I just wanted to do as a kid. I was always, you know, astonished and um, you know awestruck about going into space, and I wanted to do that. And then I think about like around middle school, I realized that I wasn't like really good at math and science, and I wasn't a huge fan of it. And I was like, well, this is not like working out too well for me. And then, um, 
I had somebody be like, well, you should just become a pilot in the military. You know, you should, you know, you can just, somebody needs to fly those, those space shuttles. Right. So I was like, that's a good point. So, <laughs> so that kind of, that kind of, I had that. And then my mom also had her private pilot's license when I was a kid growing up. So mm-hmm. um, my mom would take me flying. And so I've always kind of had a, a, a love for it um, along the way. And it's, uh, it's interesting. I try to go into the, I want. I thought I wanted to go into the Navy and become a Navy pilot and be like, well, if you can land a helicopter or a jet on a pitching deck at night in the middle of the ocean, you know, you can do anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, but I got to Norwich and I checked out the Navy ROTC and nothing against the Navy guys, but like they just float around and they, they rang bells all the time. And I'm like, I don't understand this. It doesn't look like that much fun. The army is like, Hey, we shoot guns. We threw hand grenades. We blow stuff up. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. I'm like, let's do that. You know? and so, um, so, but yeah. And then like the army's like, yeah, we fly helicopters. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. So, um, it was one of those things, you know, yeah, it was very competitive. Like Steve pointed out, but I was like, well, if I don't at least, you know, ask for it or try for it, I'll never know, you know? So, yeah. Um, it was my number one choice and I got my number one choice. It was, yeah. And, and I remember telling my students, like, actually, like if I didn't become a helicopter pilot, I wanted to be a tugboat pilot, you know, a, tug- <laughs> <laughs> a tugboat captain, uh, in the, in the army. So, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Flying has always been there in my life at some point. You know, you talked about being an astronaut when I was a kid, the Apollo project was big. And if I had anything that you could describe as a hero, it would have been astronauts. That's why I hit Still, the, yay. To this day, yeah. that's why I hit that yay huge. button. I mean, my mom would yeah. come home and she would find us kids. My, my friends, we would tip the couch over on its back and we would lay there and pretend like we were in the, in the Apollo, in the command module, and blast yeah. off when we play yep. outer space. I entered that contest, but Elon Musk didn't pick me. I was going to give it to yeah. you and let you be, go on SpaceX, but we didn't win. How different is it to fly, um, you know, like your mom's? I would imagine that she probably flew smaller smaller planes, usually like Cessnas and, and stuff, versus, yeah. you know, an army, like a Black Hawk helicopter or an Apache helicopter. How different is it the same? I would imagine some of the same basic principles apply but yeah yeah the gauges are all the same like so it's it's it, you know you at least you have that that's uh the same in terms of altitude and um and attitude and, and you know pitching you on you, you have all those indicators in, in the in the airplane and in helicopters airplanes by like design like naturally designed like they, they will fly like so if the engine cuts off in this flight you're gonna glide for a while until you know, you hit the ground. So you have a lot of options and time to work through an emergency where, um, a helicopter, not so much. It literally beats the air into submission and it, and it, and it wills itself off the ground. And, um, it, it, you can maintain some forward momentum if you do have to auto rotate. You know, that means like both your engines have died in the aircraft. And so there, you, each, those rotors are still an airfoil. They are still producing some sort of lift at some point, but they're also producing, you know, there's also drag involved. And so helicopter is a lot, a lot more complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you don't do any, any control inputs, like if you look straight down, that's where you're going to end up, you know, kind of deal. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's interesting in an airplane. It's very small control movements. You, 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 you're not, I would say not as task induced. You're very much task saturated in a helicopter. So, you know, you could be talking on, you know, anywhere from three to five radios. You have a co-pilot sitting next to you. You have 12 people that are sitting in the back. You have two crew chiefs that are helping you with airspace surveillance, make sure you're not going to run into anything or anything's going to run into you or, um, and then, you know, you got different flight controls. So, you have a collective and you have a cyclic and you, you know, each hand is doing something different and then your feet are moving as well at the same time. So it's, uh, you're kind of doing this dance, but you're seated. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it takes a little getting used to. So like, I remember in flight school, uh, when we were learning how to hover, which was probably one of the, the most difficult thing for most, for most people to do. Cause that's the first thing you have to learn how to do is hover a helicopter and uh, you either get this pendulum or pirate ship kind of motion. Um, and, uh, you know, God bless the, uh, the instructor pilots because they, they, they got to have like some, some real, some real guts <laughs> to strap into a helicopter <laughs> with somebody who's never flown one before to teach them how to do it. So 
um, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's complicated, but uh, I loved every second of it. It was, it was amazing. I always um, equate helicopter pilots to drummers because you have to oh, have yeah. everything going on at one time. Plus, your brain has to be thinking a lot and going on. So, you you talked about um, like emergencies. Let's talk about mm-hmm. flight school for a minute because I assumed you trained on yeah. a lot of emergencies. But kind of walk us through flight school, like what kind of aircraft you trained on, then how you transitioned to this and that. And did you have yeah. a choice? I mean, why, why did you end up in a Blackhawk and not a Chinook or something like that? Or an Apache? Yeah. yeah. No, great question. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to emergencies, every day was an emergency because you, you practiced them every day when you flew. Um, hmm. But yeah, like, so the way flight school kind of operated and, and it's still pretty much the same for, for my understanding. It's changed a little bit in terms of the aircraft that are now being flown, but um, when you go, when you show up to flight school, uh, you go through, um, in, in any particular order, I don't know if they've changed the order around, but when I went through, you showed up and you were in this holding, uh, company. So you had somebody who was in charge of you and said, okay, like you're going to go to, um, you're going to go to, to, uh, to Dunker school. So like, that was like the first thing out the gate and Dunker is water survival school. So the army wanted to make sure that you could swim and you could get out of an aircraft, you know, of a helicopter, specifically a helicopter of when it lands or crashes in the water. Um, so all the heavy stuff is on top of the helicopter. So once you land or crash into water, it's going to roll over and you're going to be upside down. And it's, you know, about 22,000 pounds of a helicopter, you know, so you're sinking pretty quickly. So they want you to be very comfortable in the water and they want you to be able to understand of how to, you know, get out of an aircraft safely, that sinking and how do you swim with your equipment on and, um, and, and, and water survival essence. So, um, it could be like a day to a couple of days, depending on how they have it scheduled. Um, and then the next thing that they put us through was deer school. So, um, can't really talk about too much about SEER school. They may sign a non-disclosure uh, mm-hmm. agreement when you go through it. Um, but SEER school, in essence, is for anybody who is in a high-risk job in the military. So special forces, you know, reconnaissance, you know, anything, you know, or pilots, any, any job that's going to, that may lead you to being stuck behind enemy lines. Yep. And so... Fear is uh, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school, and uh, and so they teach you how to survive once you if you crash and you and you live through the crash. They teach you how to evade capture by you know moving through the woods and surviving. Whether it's you know um, you know setting traps for animals and how to you know butcher animals and how to make shelters and fires and uh, and then. You know, there was, there's a resistance portion, you know, which, you know, at some point, you know, they, they train you on what it's like to be detained or a POW. And that's probably as far as I can go into that. And then. I think we can um, say it's then, very realistic training. Yeah, it is. And it's probably hands down. It's the best training I ever had, but you can't pay me enough money to go do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's not supposed to be enjoyable at all. It's supposed to, you know, keep you thinking in that any day that you know, you're evading is better than the day that you're, that you've been captured. Mm. Um, so, so those are like big tests that they want to put people through to make sure that you have what it takes to, to become a pilot because they would hate to spend a lot of money on you to fly. And then you wash out of water survival or seer school, you know, and then it's like, well, we can't, you know, make you a pilot. Now you have to pass these things first. Um, and so once you got done this year school, you went and you entered your basic officer leadership course. Um, so it was about seven weeks or so. And then, uh, along with that, you went through AeroMed. So, uh, where they teach you the effects of, um, flight and the impact on the body. So you learn about the inner ear and you learn about the anatomy and physiology of the human eye and you learn about harmonic vibrations and how that, you know, affects your internal organs and all sorts of stuff. So, um, there was a phrase that we had in flight school where if I studied this much in college, I would have been a doctor. <laughs> Some of the things that we had to know, you know, when it came to being a pilot. Well, so once you go through, yeah. <laughs> hey, well, you know what? Are are you a brave pilot? Because I never like to ride with a brave pilot. 
<laughs> well, I'm just, I'm stuck going from, you go from Sears school to Bullock and Bullock, like I know at least one of the things that Steve has talked about is I can't imagine going from Sears school to uh, like army, uh, like what's, what's it called? Like when you, the, the, how to, how to be an officer, basically like army graces and so on and so forth. They don't and like do that anymore. how to be, how to be polite and War, how to do war, all of that. Warrant officers have to take a course like that. They call it the bread and butter school or something like that, but no. Yeah. Go they on, don't do that anymore? Yeah, the no, they never did. Cool. Yep. Oh, I thought you said that you had to take a course on like how to. No, no. I never said that. So when, I went, when I went to, yeah, when I went to military school, we were taught on etiquette. Yeah, that's like what that. I'm trying so, to say. But it's not, yeah, that's not a commonality amongst, like, if you go to, like, University of Texas, you know, in Austin, and you're, you know, the ROTC unit's not going to really be focused on teaching you etiquette. They're going to be teaching you, you know, really how to become a leader and an officer. You know, like, the etiquette stuff might eventually roll around, mm. you know, at some point or another, but it's not a big, a big thing. Like, that was a part of our daily thing. Like, we would go to the chow hall and how you, like, you know, you placed your, your silverware and how you ate and stuff like that. And, um... Uh, but yeah, That's so yeah, like bullet, I'm afraid yeah, that I'm gonna mess you. up. Yeah, we we got you off track there. Yeah, sorry. I well, no, <laughs> no because I always am afraid. I am not classy and not polished, and I'm always afraid when I'm in a room full of like important people that I'm gonna mess things up. We'll send you to charm yeah. school. Make you look stupid. Nah. Yeah, when it comes to silverware, you just you just start on on the outside and work your way, and that's all you need to remember. So. <laughs> okay, so you finished yeah. up uh, you finished up Bullock, and then you went to actual flight school, correct? Yeah, yeah. Bullock Bullock was about teaching you about Army aviation and the mission, the purpose, the objective, what it was. You know, the different things that you could do in aviation. You understand how units were organized, and so it really gave you. Like it was really starting to submerge you into the culture of army aviation, and so once you finished that, uh, yeah, you went into flight school, like like actual like initial um, rotary wing flight school. And so uh, at the time, they were utilizing the Bell two hundred six Jet Ranger, which is the equivalent of a news helicopter, um, and uh, that's what we learned to fly in. And it was a single engine helicopter. And so your, your schedule is flip-flopped on you. So some, like one week you would have morning flight line where you go fly in the mornings and then you'd have afternoon academics. And then the next week it would switch up where you would have morning academics and then afternoon the flight line. And that would go on for at least three phases. So in that first helicopter, you would learn how to fly, which was called primary or contact. And that was just teaching you how to hover, how to fly traffic patterns, how to land, how to take off. Um, and once you finished that, um, you had to, like, you had to take a test, like an actual, like call a check ride where a different instructor gets in the aircraft with you and you have to fly and they do all these, you know, tests with, they, they test you on emergency procedures and they test you on knowledge where you learn about the limitations of the aircraft, you know, and you know, what's good numbers, what's bad numbers, you know, and you know, what the emergency procedure for this emergency, um, you learn about airspace and weather and you, you learn about so much stuff. It's just, it's just a lot. It's really, really a lot. And then once you finish that, you go into instruments where you're pretty much doing the exact same stuff, but now you're flying the aircraft by just looking inside out a dashboard. So it's like, it's like you driving down the road and the road is completely fogged over, but you're just looking at your dash cluster inside your, inside your vehicle. And that's what you're doing in instruments. All you're doing is looking at a dashboard and you're reading those instruments to understand where the aircraft is in relation to the ground. And you're following these beacons to get you to, from one airport to the next. Um, and so you learn about instruments and instruments is one of those things where you either get it or you don't. And I was one of those people that did not. And I struggled with it. Um, and it was, I probably got my first gray hairs going through, <laughs> through instruments. Um, but I made it through instruments and then you go into uh, basic war fighting skills where you learn how to make a map book and you start flying, you know, utilizing real maps and you're flying low up to the ground and you're really looking at terrain and under, understanding, um, you know, flying, you know, a certain speed, you know, at a certain heading, you know, for a certain time. And then you can make turns based off of that. So it's called pilotage and dead reckoning. And, you know, you learn how to fly that way and you're, you're, it's a, it's a really a, 
a course on communication. So you don't really do too much flying in that portion. It's your instructor that's doing all the flying, but you're telling them where to go. Yeah. And your success is based on, do you get where you're supposed to go in the time that you were supposed to get there? Um, uh, so there was that. And then once you finished up that, you then, um, you went and assessed for your advanced aircraft. So when I was going through flight school, we had uh, a couple of choices. You had the Apache, which is the attack helicopter platform. You had the Chinook, which is our heavy cargo helicopter that looks like two hum- palm trees, you know, pumping the dumpster and um and then uh you got the kiowa which was our reconnaissance aircraft and then you have the black hawk which was the utility aircraft which you know the jack of all trees the swiss army knife all the aircraft right Mm -hmm. um and so you had so all these tests that you've done all these all these you know whether it was a written test or a flying test or it was a physical fitness test all these things that you've done they were you, they, they had points and so you had an order of merit list and you were all ranked from like one to, to last and literally the difference between the first person and the last person in the class was a couple hundred maybe a thousandth of a point wow um and that's, that's good to know of yeah that's <laughs> the type of quality that you're really getting you know the army like takes serious people to get through flight school and um you know, it, you know, it's not like, you know, uh, somebody had, you know, every, you know, every doctorate class, you know, somebody had to finish last, you know, and you never know if you had that doctor <laughs> or not, or even that pilot in the airlines, you know, like, well, yeah, somebody had to finish last in their class, you know, you never know, but like, there's always that high quality, that high standard that you, everybody's expected to achieve. So, how much, um, so what they do, yeah, go ahead. How, how much did the army spend training a pilot? Oh, millions, millions of dollars. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. Just like the, the maintenance of a helicopter is insanely expensive. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, then you're talking about jet fuel and then you're talking about the, the price of costing, you know, uh, of an instructor and then the cost of, you know, the army can tell you like, Hey, one hour of flight time on this helicopter is this much money. And, and so, a lot, a lot goes into it, many, uh, into training a pilot. How many hours roughly did you have when you graduated and got your wings oh. and went out to, out to the force? I want to say. That sounded like a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's been a while since somebody asked me that. I haven't had to think about that. I want to, I want to say like, that's a guess. That's a guess. So, um, but I would say, yeah, somewhere around maybe 80 hours. Yeah. A civilian license, it's 50, it's 50 hours for a civilian license. Yeah. It's been a while since somebody asked you that. And I'm sorry, I don't have a, like, a, like a definitive answer. But yeah, I would, I would say it's around, yeah, I'd give or take 80. Somebody, I'm sure somebody a little bit more current might, might correct you in the comments. But, or, um, but yeah, the, yeah, so like they end up going down this order of merit list at that point and they say, okay, like the number one person gets their number one choice. And, and at that time they'll say, okay, like we, everybody, there's a helicopter here for everybody, but there's only so many of each type <laughs> of aircraft because there's, you know, so you it literally goes down to you like, you know, yeah, <laughs> like you're going to walk away with a helicopter, you know, assignment no matter what. Um, and, but yeah, you might not get what you did, what you get, you know? So, um, and then the ones that were really competitive were the reconnaissance aircraft, the, the Kiowas, which we don't have anymore. We don't fly those. Those with MP commission and the Chinooks. So those were very limited. So there was always a lot of Apache and a lot of Black Hawk helicopters. Um, so I wasn't at the top of my class, uh, you know, but I, I did. I still did pretty well for myself. Um, and then once you have that, then you you pretty much start all over again in the process of primary instrument basic war fighting skills, um, but you're doing it in that advanced airframe and you're learning how to fly that advanced airframe. So it's like going from like a geo Metro, you know, I don't, they don't even make these cars anymore. I'm aging my, I'm dating myself <laughs> a little bit. You know, you know, it's going for like a little, you know, little tiny, you know, four cylinder, you know, you know, car, you know, that a college student would drive into a sports car. Mm-hmm. That's what it you know, equates to. And so, um, yeah, you would, you would learn how to fly that aircraft and all the capabilities that came with it. So each aircraft had a certain responsibility, a certain mission set. Uh, you know, the Apache was designed to, you know, you know, 
take out bad guys, you know, whether it, you know, anywhere from tanks to soldiers on the ground. And then you had, you know, Chinooks that could lift very, very heavy things. Um, they can move a lot of cargo very quickly or a lot of people very quickly. Um, and then you got, you know, the Blackhawk, the Blackhawk, you know, the workhorse that, you know, took over for the Huey, you know, that, you know, back in Vietnam, like the, the Blackhawk, you know, can, you know, lift 9,000 pounds, you know, it can pick up a, you know, uh, an artillery gun or a Humvee. It could pick up a lot of food. It could, you know, take people. It was, you know, the primary aircraft for doing air assault, you know, bringing people in from one place into another place that was very hard to get to, to engage the enemy. So, um, yeah. It was, yeah, so that was that was in essence like flight school. So oh, and then like you mixed in night flying. So that's when you did your first bit of night flying was in your advanced aircraft. So you learned how to fly using night vision goggles, which is like looking through a, a toilet paper tube, um, but everything's green and you have no depth perception. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a little bit more of a challenge uh, for sure. And um, and then if you're an Apache pilot, you, you went through gunnery, so you had to learn how to shoot shoot the air, you know, the, the guns and uh, launch the rockets and the missiles that, you know, would be equipped on the, on that, yeah. on that platform. I, re- I remember mm-hmm. being stationed in uh first squadron, fourth cavalry out at Fort Riley, Kansas. And there we had Cobras. And I remember at gunnery, the pilots would come in from night gunnery and just, they would come in, it would be a cool night and they would be drenched in sweat because the pressure would be so high and it was just that intense. They would, they would come in and land yeah. and they would be, I mean, their uniforms would be soaked in sweat. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Many, many, many sweaty flights. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get extra yeah. money to get your uniform washed? No, you no, did. No, you no, got no. flight pay. Don't sit there and say you didn't. Oh, I did. Get, yeah. I did get flight pay. Yeah. No, that's true. I did get flight pay, but yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think it was the intent was to wash my uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you learn how to fly uh, how many hours at night? Just rough 10, 20. Uh, yeah, about that. Yeah. You didn't like, it wasn't nowhere near, you know, the amount that you had total coming out of flight school, but it, yeah, it was a significant amount. So you, you, that was a phase that you went through and you had to do everything that you learned how to do during the day. You had to, show that you could do all those things at night under night vision. Uh, and then you also, you did unaided flying. So there was times where you just went out and you didn't fly with night vision at all. You just went out and flew like you would in the day, but now it's at night. So, oh, wow. um, yeah. Now is, so you, you, you were stationed in Germany. And I think you said, I was Ho- Hohenfels. Well, I knew you were stationed in Hohenfels and yeah. there I'm Germany is so regulated. Was it, a lot different flying in Germany than it was say at Fort hood just because yeah. of the air traffic control and the air corridors and things like that. Yeah. I honestly, I think it was a lot easier in Germany. Huh. Um, and I think a lot of it was cause uh, they, you would talk to these flight service stations or flight following these, these air traffic controllers and um, if you were landing into an, an airport that got somewhat regular commercial airline traffic, they would expedite you, you know, because you're, you're moving very slow in comparison to an airline uh, plane. So um, they would give you what's called vectors. So they would take a lot of work away from you and they would just literally tell you where to go. They would mm. tell you what altitude to fly. They would tell you what heading to fly. Then they would tell you when to turn. And so they would literally just kind of direct traffic into the airport um, and so, but yeah, it was great. Um, great flying. I loved flying in Germany. Like I actually had like the most scariest flight I had was not in combat. It actually was, um, flying from Germany into Prague, um, uh, to do an emergency resupply. We were delivering a transmission for a striker that broke down and, uh, and we, we, we went into the clouds. We knew we were going to go into the clouds. And, uh, but it was a lot hairier than what we initially anticipated. So it looked like somebody was throwing slushies on our windshield Ooh. and, uh, and then the crew chief in the back is like, Hey, sir, it's snowing back here. And so it was, um, I flew with a very strong instructor pilot. I was still in my, um, progression as a, a pilot in command at that time. And, 
it was it was definitely one of the like we got through it, but uh, you, I could tell like he was even a little bit nervous and a little task saturated. But we worked together as a team and had that good crew coordination. But yeah, definitely one of those things like when you landed, it was like you were pulling the seat cushion out of your butt. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, every pilot yeah. I've ever known. I understand all the training, like you said, with all the medical and stuff like that. But every pilot I've ever, ever known was very mechanically in tune and sound with the type of aircraft they were flying. Mm, yeah. did, did, did you get, did you train on the maintenance too, or how did that no, work? No, but it, the, we had crew chiefs that, that we had dedicated teams that do would do the maintenance on the aircraft. But as an officer, you know, to be a good leader, you really want to know what your soldiers are up to. And so, it, you know, if you had time where you weren't stuck in a meeting or you weren't dealing with something administrative, um, I always made an effort to go down and see my crew chiefs and see what they were up to. Like if they needed a hand, like I was never going to do any of the maintenance because I was not I'm not a rated mechanic. You know, I was just the guy who flew everything, but it was important to me to know what my soldiers were doing, um, you know, and so that I could, you know, lead them better. I could know what their frustrations were and be like, okay, let's see how we can fix this. You know, if it was something that was a personnel issue or an administrative issue or they weren't getting the parts they needed, you know, I could go, you know, track stuff down like that for them, you know, and, and, but I definitely had to know what was going on with the maintenance of the aircraft at all times, even though I never did any maintenance yeah. i definitely had a track like if we had 12 like 10 helicopters you know you're always going to have a spare helicopter around and, and they can't all go into this like overhaul maintenance all yeah the i got time. two or th- i got two or three out in the backyard as just to does, have handy totally yeah <laughs> yeah so you know so yeah like you always have to understand you know what was going on with your maintenance plan you were very close with your maintenance test pilot who flew those and they definitely understood the maintenance that was going into those aircraft um, and they worked very closely with the crew chiefs on maintenance and they would go fly those things, you know, once the crew chiefs were done repairing them, you know, so if they had to take the blades off and then put them back on, that guy would go out and he would fly those aircraft to make sure that they weren't going to fall apart. And, uh, and, and then, you know, cause he was trained to do that and direct, you know, how to, you know, knew what he was looking for or what she was looking for. Um, um, but yeah, when it came to like the operation of the aircraft, definitely you had to understand the I mean, fuel you, systems. The yeah, I mean, you you would understand if you yeah. heard something a different sound, you would know if the transmission something's going on in the transmission or something. I mean, yeah, that's when I talk about you're in like, tune. Yeah, and the cockpit had 88 lights on the dash, and it still does. You know, it's a piano, man. Girl. That's a piano. Yeah, and, and so these lights would light up, and it would tell you, like, hey, this, this is a problem. And so we were trained to recognize the sequence and pattern of lights. You know, like, okay, if this light comes on, it's telling me that I have this issue. And then you have to know, like, okay, here's the emergency procedure, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to back myself up with the checklist, you know, and the checklist, we have this emergency checklist in the back of our our operators checklist that we carry with us every single flight that we use to turn the aircraft on, turn the aircraft off. Um, and, and we make sure like we're doing the steps the way we're supposed to be doing them. Um, but yeah, like you, it, you develop a really good correlation of how the systems all work and intertwine with one another. Yeah. Um, and that comes after, you know, flying the aircraft for a while. Um, and, and you really start understanding it, you know, cause you have to do the pre-flight. You have to go make sure like, the tires aren't flat, the struts aren't blown out, that you're not leaking anything out of the hydraulic deck, that there's no water in the fuel. Um, you know, you got all the emergency equipment that you're supposed to have. There's no cracks or dings where they're not supposed to be and um, all that good stuff. Yep. Okay, so you um, you ended up in Afghanistan for two tours in Afghanistan? Yeah, I did, yep. How is flying over there? I mean, that type of environment, is it tougher on the aircraft? Is it I mean, obviously you're in a combat zone. It's mentally tougher on you, but let's just talk about the aircraft first think that before we get into the type in of missions you did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the aircraft, I mean, it's hot and it's a very high altitude. So, you know, for any helicopter, whether it's a military one or a civilian one, just the way helicopters are designed that in based on physics, you know, the hotter the temperature is and the higher up you go, the, the more spaced out the air molecules are. So, it's, um, you know, it's really hard to push those molecules down since they're so spread out and to stay up in the air. So the, the engines work a lot harder. The transmission works a lot harder. 
you can't carry as much weight, um, or, you know, whether it's gas or people or equipment or ammunition, like that's all stuff you want to consider when you're flying in high and hot altitudes. Um, and, um, you know, it's, you got to think of air as a fluid, just like water, you know, and, and that a rotor system is just like a paddle and you're, you're in a canoe, you know, so, um, you, know, you can't really paddle a canoe through a through a, a cloud of steam, you know, as well as you can through you know a, a, a lake of like actual water, mm. um, and that's kind of you know the, the same concept. You know, when you're closer to sea level and the air is a little bit cooler, it's much easier to fly on. You know, it's much easier on the aircraft, but if it's hot and high, um, much more challenging. I remember watching in Iraq, the pilots would just pop off the ground really fast because of all the the sand and it was pitting the uh, rotor mm. blades. Yeah. 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 Dust landings were crazy. So it, it was insane to like, I never have to go to the moon because I know what it's like to land on the moon. Now. Oh, wow. <laughs> because you, <laughs> you go, yeah, you, you go, you'd land in these places in Afghanistan that never seen a helicopter before, you know, and, um, the, the sand, the dirt out in Afghanistan is the consistency of talcum powder. Oh, wow. Or baby powder, you know, if you don't know what talcum powder is. And, and it's, it's, and it's super fertile. And you have this 22,000 pound helicopter that's 60 feet long and you land and this thing just disappears in a cloud. We call it a moon <laughs> dust. It, yeah. It's called a, yeah, it's called a brownout. Yeah. It's like a dust landing. Yeah. And so, yeah, you literally, I feel the best way to do that. You literally have to look straight down outside of your window or through your chin bubble window where your feet are. And you're constantly communicating with your crew and be like, I have the ground, I have the ground, I have the ground, I have the ground, and then you touch down. You know, and if you lose the ground, then you're talking, you know, then like it goes to the, the crew chief in the back and be like, hey, sir, I got the ground, I got the ground, I got the ground, or they lose the ground. And then if nobody has the ground, then you have to climb up vertically to get above the cloud and, and get out of it and try it again. Yeah. Um, you're like uh, on the old Mississippi River Road, someone crazy. yelling, Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> rope out the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy uh, to see all that. Woo. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy to do to do landings like that, and uh, it was really something else to to see people do landings like that. And then the, the takeoffs are just as challenging. You just had to do it just like I talked about. You got to climb out straight up. And um, and then right out of the cloud, and then you're good. I can't imagine when that all that dust settles. Like it's going to settle on your helicopter. So did you have to take very good? Like did you have to wash it and like be really super careful about it, or so that it yeah, doesn't that affect anything? The, yeah, that that was part of the maintenance. Like you'd have to, you know, you you know, you're you're constantly keeping an eye on the engines, or you know, is the the engines being of the turbine sand blades being, you know, chewed away like, you know, by all the dirt, like, you know, it's kind of like sandpaper. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, that, that was like a lot of things that the maintenance guys would always keep an eye on, but yeah, the aircraft were always very well maintained at, at all times. You know, they were, they were constantly keeping an eye on them when we were over there. Well, can you walk us through like the procedures for to say a, a typical mission in in Afghanistan, like a resupply or to go pick someone up or drop someone off, just a stereotypical Michigan. How much mission planning was there? What was the flight like? You know, when, yeah. you, when you got there, when there was, you know, hostile people around, what extra precautions did you have to take? Just kind of walk us through a typical mission. Yeah, it, it definitely varied. Like when I was in Afghanistan, we did a lot of ring routes. So we were glorified bus drivers. So Afghanistan only had like one major road. It was Highway One, and you know the there was the best way to get around the country was by helicopter or by plane. And so we would we would fly what was called ring routes, and so we would never keep the same route. You know, we would, we might go to the same places, but we would never keep the same route every day. Um, and you know, those would be like eight hour flights. You know, you go, you go fly for two hours, get, you know, get some gas, go fly another two hours, get some gas and keep going. And you're keep moving people around the, the battlefield and circulating them. So that was like the most common mission when I was over in Afghanistan, we did a lot of, um, mail runs. We would deliver mail. We would bring food. We would do leaflet drops. We were big in supporting the voting. We would pick up ballots and, 
Uh, we would do stuff like that. Um, and then, um, then you get your, you get your, like your ones that are a little bit more unusual. It all depends on like what part of the country we were in, you know, the, the unit was in, um, you know, sometimes you did air assaults where you would coordinate with a ground unit and say, you know, where do you want to go? What time do you want to land there? You know, and you do all this backwards planning be like, okay, we need to pick you up by this time to get you where you want to go. And, um, and you have a lot of other people working that do, you know, do an assess, you know, an enemy assessment, you know, where, where are these, you know, things that we really need to avoid or things that we need to be aware of and constantly looking at weather, you know, do we have bad weather coming in? How much, you know, illumination do we have? Are we flying at night? Are we flying during the daytime? So there was a lot of things that we always considered. Um, we always flew with ammunition and guns. You know, I always had a nine mil strapped to my chest and I had an M4 sitting right next to me in my cockpit and the other pilot had the same. And then the crew chief in the back had their M4s and then they had their machine guns that are, that are you know, strapped to the door as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, we always, always fly with like uh, coolers of cold water and, you know, and it got so hot, you know, we would fly up to, you know, 10,000 feet or something like that, something crazy like that. You know, because uh, it was a lot cooler up there. So mm-hmm. I think it, normally it's like every thousand feet that you climb, the temperature drops two degrees. But in Afghanistan, it was weird. Every thousand feet that we climbed, it drops three degrees. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So, but beautiful country. Like if they ever got their crap together, they'd have one hell of a ski resort. <laughs> <laughs> the Hindu, the Hindu Kush Mountains are are insane. Um, sometimes we had to fly with supplemental oxygen because you you know you run into hypoxia helicopters are not pressurized like, um, airline, uh, planes are. So, you know, we had to fly with, uh, nose cannula bottles and, you know, if we flew too high for a certain amount of time, we'd have to, you know, breathe that supplement, supplemental oxygen in so we wouldn't get into a hypoxic state. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, you know, but like I did have one crazy, the craziest mission I flew in Afghanistan, I, I went in there with my instructor pilot one day to our command center um, and they're like, we got a resupply mission for you. They're like, Oh, cool. And so, um, they, uh, we had to fly out to this place called Neymana and we, and it was a, it was another, um, outpost. It was not an outpost. It was, it was a, a Norwegian ran heliport, if you will, up in Northern Afghanistan. And, and so we get there and uh, we're like, okay, like who are we here to pick up, you know, or what are we here to pick up? And, this uh, Tacoma, you know, Hilux, you know, pickup truck rolls up with a bunch of Afghans in the back. And, uh, and they got like uh, a random like dish TV, satellite dish, some boxes, and then a burlap sack. And it's like, oh, okay. And so it's the middle of winter and um, my crew chief's like, sir, can we fly with the doors open? I'm like, no, you can't fly with the doors open. I was like, you know, like, why? I'm like, why would you want to fly with the doors open? He's like, it's really smell really bad. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh. no. And they, they did. Like, they smelled pretty bad. But I was like, no. I'm like, we're not flying with the doors open. It's freezing outside. And, uh, but I remember asking those guys, I'm like, I was like, I was told you guys are carrying ammunition. Where's all the ammunition at? And so they open up the, the burlap bag and it's a bunch of loose 7.62 millimeter rounds, like stuff like that goes into like an AK 47 or, you know, a big machine gun for the, um, uh, for the U S and, uh, I was like, all right, cool. Get in. So uh-huh. we, they gave us this, um, this satellite grid, you know, like here's your grid fly to this grid where you're dropping these people off. I was like, okay. So we were flying and our GPS is pointing us in the direction and, and it's not like this village or anything like that. Like it's, it's like out in the middle of the mountains and all of a sudden you see this big, um, Canyon open up. And within this canyon, this valley, you see this big pillar of earth. And on top of it is these two, uh, it's these villages. And it's like, what? Like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, that's where we were landing. We landed on top of this big pillar in the middle of this canyon where this, like, this isolated village was. And the only way they, they possibly even got up there was by donkey or wow. mule. And, and so we land and we, we drop these guys off and, um, and, and it's like, you just start seeing these kids and these women coming out of these mud huts and we're like, Whoa, like this is nuts. And so we had a land, we landed on a hill. So when you land on a hill, your rotor disc is, is pushed forward so you can stay put on the hill so you don't slide down. And when that happens, your rotor disc gets maybe like six feet off the ground. Um, cause you're tilting it forward 
and but you can't really see it. So like people were getting really close to the aircraft. So like our crew just had to get people out of the way, and it, it was an absolutely nuts experience. And I remember you know taking off, and they had this donkey or mule with a with a sack over its head, and it, and it was tied up, and it was just freaking out. Like I had no idea what it was going on. And what the heck? Why did it have a like, sack keep, on its head? Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but it was like it was trying to run away, but it kept on running into the wall that it was tied to. And, <laughs> um, and when we were taking off, like these, you know, the mothers were just like taking their kids and like you know, kind of grabbing them by like the back of the back of the shirt and the, the waist, and and kind of tossing them into the mud hut. And and we we flew away, and I'm like, that's insane! Like that's insane! Like you know, like, it put it put the wards perspective because it, it, they were just so isolated, like the geopolitics. Um, was just absolutely nuts, like how isolated people were, and um, you know, did they you know, did they think we were the Russians? You know, like they like did they even know like what was going on in the world? Like we had like it was just it was the, the craziest thing uh, ever to to kind of experience like that, and that was like a really eye opening um, thing for me to to experience on you know when I was in Afghanistan. So- it, put, it put the world in, into a whole different lens for me. We talk about that sometimes, Steve and I do, about how big, you know, we talk about, you think the world is kind of small and people can relate, but then when you think about, like, those people are right there right now, like, on their pillar in the middle of Afghanistan, in their little mud hut, they don't have internet, they don't have phone, they have no idea that we're talking about them, it just, it just is amazing to me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, it was nuts. It really, it really changed on how I like I saw the world. You know that one, that one mission. You know, it was, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great big world out there, Matt. It's, it's been really enjoyable having you on the show, and I, and I hope super interesting. What we brought out is how skilled an aviator, a pilot, really has to be. I mean, you just can't, you can't take a dummy and just put them in a cockpit and expect them to. <laughs> have all this stuff. Uh, I'm going to leave the last thing with you here. Anything else on uh, army aviation, the army two or three minutes? Yeah. I mean, you know, first off, thank you for again for having me. This was a great opportunity. Um, uh, the, the army was great. I loved every second of it. Um, I encourage anybody who's out there who's in the United States and, um, and, you know, thinking about joining the army and having dreams to go and fly helicopters is, go do it, you know, continue to, to, to challenge yourself and push yourself. And, um, it's a great opportunity to, to go and, you know, serve your country by flying helicopters and, uh, and, 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 you know, even if you don't, you know, continue flying, like I'm not flying, you know, outside of the army. Um, you know, I'm doing a, a you know, a corporate job now. Um, but I have a lot of friends that transition, you know, to the airlines, um, and, um, and, and no matter what you do in the army or in the military period, uh, your leadership skills are going to be the most marketable thing you're going to walk away with. And, uh, and no, no matter what you do. So, um, absolutely. Thank, thank, yeah. Thank you very much. I wish I had a soundtrack of be all you can be right now. I, know, I'd right? Play it. Well, I hire people. I mean, I hire people as part of my, my job and I will 100% hire an army vet over a non I mean, my, or a military my vet. heart's pumping red, white, and blue know, again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for being we on the show. Really and appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, I know the thing that no one ever likes to hear who serves. So I'm not even going to say, you know, thank you for your service. I'll say it. Cause I didn't serve. So, all right. So Matt, <laughs> thank you for being on the show. And, um, we'll talk to you later. Sounds great. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Matt. Well, Kim. Yeah. How do people get hold of us? Um, you can go to our website at an hour of your life.com. Or you can find us on all the socials. Uh, we're on Facebook, An Hour of Your Life. We are on Instagram, An Hour of Your Life. And we're on Twitter at A Lost Hour, which is also our Gmail address, at um, A Lost Hour at gmail.com. And we are one step closer to the thing we're about to announce. Uh, I'm so yep. excited. Yep. I can't wait yep. to yep. announce not, it. Not there yet. I Just mean, still you guys waiting can on. probably guess what it is, but still you don't wait, know specifics. Still so. waiting on some graphics to come in. Yeah. And then, so we'll have something up and running here. I'm Maybe so in a week excited. or two. I'm so excited. All right. We will announce it probably May 1st. Probably. 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 Maybe All right. Before then. All right. Anything else, Kim? I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. 
If you want to find out more about how to become a pilot for the United States Army, go to GoArmy.com. Or any job in the United States Army, GoArmy.com.